welcome to the inaugural episode of the IMDb Journey podcast, where we break down one movie a week from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and I am making fists of my toes in excitement for this to start. And I'm Dean Jeffrey, and I've just finished reading Hostage Terrorist, Terrorist Hostage. We're just a couple of mates from Melbourne, Australia, who love talking about movies, and figure we may as well start recording it for everyone else to listen to. Now, Dean, why did we choose the IMDb Top 250 as our list? Well, I don't know. Why did we? <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's, it's a better list. Well, I know I chose it because it's a list that I've been following for many years now. Even at one point when I was younger, I had every poster of the IMDb Top 250 on my wall. Granted, I had printed them off and had them up there, and I would change it on the regular. That's how much I got invested in this list. Well, for me, the IMDb Top 250 list has always been very strongly aligned with my own thoughts and views on movies in general. There are a few in there that uh, I definitely don't care for, but as a whole, I do like most of the movies there, and I'm keen to discuss them. Yeah, I believe a couple of years ago, Dean and I both decided to make a bet to see who could finish the list first. We burnt ourselves out in about a month when we realised <laughs> we were both watching four movies a day, trying to one-up <laughs> each other, and we just decided to call it quits. Cut to about a year later where... I just decided I really wanted to finish this list, so I made a bet with Dean that I would be able to finish the list with 92 movies to go, and I had 96 days to do it. I did manage to finish that list, albeit I did watch many movies a day, and there are, there are actual movies now that I've completely forgotten about. I can't even tell you a plot for the movie. So I figured, why not go back into this list and break down each movie Give yourself one week of time to do it. Really get invested in it. Find out if some of these movies that I didn't like when I watched it the first time, is that accurate? Would I like it again if I really studied it? And more to the point, get Dean to finish this list because how many have you seen? You've probably seen about 170, something like that? Yeah, about that. I think I've got about 80 on there that I haven't actually seen. A lot of them are really old or really foreign. So Yeah, and since I finished the list a year ago... There's been a couple of movies that have since joined that list, and I haven't really gone back and watched those, so I'm back down to about 235, 236 about oh, really? at, this, at this time That's of recording. That's than I would have expected. Well, and, and also, with this list, there's a lot of movies on there that I may have seen when I was 14, 15, 16, and doing my you know massive movie-watching binges that I used to do when I was younger, and I haven't watched them again since. And obviously my opinion on these movies is probably going to change a fair bit now that I'm a bit older and have a bit more knowledge of movies and film in general. Yeah, just a little bit about us. We are roughly 29, 30 years old, married with multiple kids. We're not roughly 29 and 30 years old. <laughs> we bro- actually are I broke 29 down, and 30 years old. I broke down the age range of us as together. <laughs> so together we're about 29 and a half. Yeah, that's, that's the median. So, when we got together last week, we randomly chose a movie through uh, a random number generator between 1 and 250. It came up with, at the time, 122. Yeah, 122. And it wound, we wound up picking Die Hard for our first movie, so we thought that was... I'm very happy with that selection. Yeah, it was a good selection. We've, we've, seen, we've both seen Die Hard multiple, multiple times before, and it's a movie we're excited to pick as our first movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Let's get into the 1988 film, Die Hard. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home, Sue? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. I missed you. Instead, 
He's going to have to save her. So, Die Hard, released in 1988, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, and Reginald Val Johnson, directed by John McTiernan, whose previous works included Predator. Another classic 80s action film. Yeah, so made for $28 million, uh, the box office broke at $140.8 million. That's a, a large return on investment, if I do say so myself. Very profitable. I wonder how that would uh, relate with inflation now, what $140 million would be. <laughs> <laughs> no? Don't ask questions we don't know the answer to? Why would we do that? Now we need to look it up. <laughs> Great. All right. Hold on, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Whenever you're ready. This is your fault. <laughs> Sorry, I was just curious. Okay, 292. $292 million. Yeah, the legacy of Die Hard is extensive. I mean, it's included in the 1001 movies you must see before you die. It was ranked 39 in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills. Multiple other lists, including John McClane in Top Heroes of All Time. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, in the top 100 movie quotes of all time. It's It was ranked 10th in the anniversary edition of AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies. It was ranked 29th in the Empire's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. It's up there in every list you could think of, including the IMDb Top 250. Which is the most important list and what we're That's here to right. talk about. So before we get into the movie, I'll just tell you the history I have with this film. I think I saw it when I was about 14 years old with my old man. I remember thinking it was very violent and not too much else. It wasn't really until I was about 17, 18, I started watching it pretty regularly that I fell in love with it, and I would now consider it one of the movies that I've watched more than any other. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, It is one of the movies that I have watched the most in my lifetime. I actually think I watched Die Hard with a Vengeance before Die Hard. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I definitely did. That's how I was introduced to this Die Hard world. I watched that and I thought, this is really good. Let's go back and see what else there is. And found Die Hard and then watched that and then watched it again. Got it on the DVD Ultimate Edition back in the day when that came out. And then it was one of those DVDs that just got worn out. Much like the franchise. (laughs) We haven't seen the fifth one, have you? Have you seen the the fourth one? No. Oh, yes. I have actually seen the fourth one. It's throwaway and nothing special. But one, two and three are pretty classic uh, original trilogy of action movies. So, that being said, let's get into our movie breakdown of Die Hard. Now, the last thing McLean wants... Think, damn think! ...is to be a hero. Where's Howie? Hey, Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> so, just a general spoiler alert for this movie and any movie to come here. We will, we'll be spoiling the absolute crap out of this movie. I think it's safe to say, if you're listening to this podcast you probably have seen die hard already even if you're not listening you've probably seen die hard as well yes (laughs) agreed but just just a warning from now and for every other podcast we will be spoiling these movies so if you have not seen it please stop listening go and watch it and come back all right let's get into it so the movie opens up as a plane lands at the lax airport and we get our first shot of john mcclain's hands tensing the arm of the of the seat. And for me, I love this as a first shot. It sets up McLean as a normal person. He's got fears. He's human, which is a big change from all those action superstars of the 80s that have come up at this point, like with Stallone in Rambo and Schwarzenegger in Commando. Yeah, and those guys are macho, 
muscle-bound men who are basically indestructible. And, yeah, as you say, very quickly we're introduced to this character as an everyday man. Yeah. Someone the audience can relate to very easily. I really love this initial chat with his uh, passenger beside him. Who we don't hear a name from, do we? No. No. No, we don't hear his name, unfortunately. Because we can, we could basically say that this guy is the reason... It's his fault that McLean ends up barefoot in this movie because he tells him if he wants to break that anxiety of the flight, he takes his shoes off, takes his socks off, and makes fists with his toes. Have you ever made fists with your toes? I actually have. I have mean, how, how have you not? Not not to cure um, jet lag or anything, just because you know you watch Die Hard and you you feel like walking around making fists with your toes. I'm sure my toe fists aren't nearly as impressive as Bruce Willis's though. So when McLean gets up, the passenger notices he has a gun. And he eases him by telling him he's a cop. It's overall this whole scene is a great establishment of McLean, his job, his vulnerabilities, uh, which is which will become an issue later on in the film. Can you imagine someone carrying a gun so casually on a plane now? Ooh boy, I think <laughs> <laughs> that, the movie like, would it's be just the, movie, the movie would end right there. He's, he's just taken casu- down the end. He's just casually got a gun, <laughs> <laughs> and he's so calm about it. It's like just relax, just relax. I'm a cop. <laughs> Trust me, I've been doing it for eleven years. <laughs> We, we also get that great shot of the flight attendant checking him out when he's walking off and he gives a look like, that, that's right, okay. That's it. That's something I noticed on this rewatch. He he checks out women a lot in this movie. And I think that sort of does set up because you do see in that first shot when he's clenching his hands, he's obviously wearing his wedding ring. But then you see him checking out all these young ladies on his way to see his wife. Correct. So you are, you are subtly establishing that there is obviously issues in this marriage. So now we set up the Nakatomi Christmas party. We are introduced to Ellis and Holly. Ellis is your, your classic 80s yuppie sleazeball. He is such a great character. Yeah, I agree completely. I feel like I'm going to say that a lot in this review, but Ellis is so, so well-established. <laughs> <laughs> and we also get introduced to Holly as the, I guess, the driven, determined woman in the workforce there who doesn't take any shit. No, no damsel in distress here. This is where we establish a relationship with Holly and John. Is it John or is it McLean? Are we going to, let's let's do this right now. Are we going to call him John or are we call him McLean? I'll say John. Oh, I was going to say McLean. Well, John, John McLean. McLean, he's just he's just McLean throughout the whole thing. Who calls him McLean? No one calls him John except for Holly. Yes, they do. We may as well just call him Roy. Mr. Cowboy. <laughs> Mr. Cowboy. <laughs> All right. We'll call him what it, we'll call him John or McLean. We both okay. we, everyone knows who this person is. So Holly is on the on the call with her maid and her kids, and we get revealed here that McLean is visiting for the Christmas holidays. Yep. And you can see that Holly is she's really hoping that John arrives. That even though they're separated, she she wants him there. She misses him. She wants to see him without a doubt. And you can yeah. tell that as well because of the uh, the photo she has of him still on the. On her desk. Yeah. She's she's disappointed and angry when she realizes that he might not be coming. Slams the picture down on the desk. She's got some contempt for her husband. But it is a very good setup for what's coming up. And this is what this movie does. It has a lot of good setups for all these different little subplots that are coming up. We'll get to them, but there's a lot of them. And they're really good. Yeah. They, they really are. And you don't notice them when you watch it very casually as much. But when you're, when you're watching a movie with intent to talk about it, you really do pick up on how many things are happening that are going to affect the situation later and just how tight this script is. Yeah. I agree completely. Okay. So at this stage, we are introduced to Argyle, the limo driver who's going to take John from the airport to the 
Nakatomi Plaza building. Yeah, it's also here that we discover a bit more about McLean himself, about how he's a blue-collar working-class guy. He's never been on a limo before. He sits in the front seat with him instead of sitting in the back. And we also get some interesting conversation between Argyle and McLean, specifically about the relationship between Holly and himself. She had a good job, turned into a great career. Now that means she had to move here. You're very fast, Argyle. So why didn't you come? Well, why'd you come with her, man? What's up? Because I'm a New York cop. I got a six-month backlog of New York scumbags I'm still trying to put behind bars. I can't just pick up and go that easy. In other words, you thought she wasn't going to make it out here and she'd come crawling up back to you, so why bother to pack, right? <laughs> like I said, you're very fast, Argon. <laughs> and we also see the establishing shot of the Nakatomi building, the place where this whole movie is centred. Now, Dean, did you know that the Nakatomi building is actually the Fox Studios building, and it, that, that's the company that made the movie. So they use their own building to film. However, they, they, they charge themselves to use the building. <laughs> no, I did not know that. That is a very smart way to save some costs, I imagine. Yep, and yep, and this building got so popular with tourists after that happened that people are now forbidden from taking photos directly outside that building. It is that popular. That's... <laughs> What do they have? Guards walking around <laughs> the bottom. Anyone pulls out a smartphone is quickly confiscated. A quick flash. And, ah, they're, they're, they had someone come, some guy's just there. So, yeah, we are introduced to Argyle. He's the, the fun guy, somewhat comic relief of the film. He does get his shining moment at the end, but he's really there for a bit of comic relief along the way. Don't you agree? Yeah, he is. He does establish a lot of exposition as well with John as they're going towards the building. So, he's not really an important character, but... He's there, and he does his, his part well. I really like the bit where uh, John says to him, Hey man, do you have any Christmas music? And this he is says, Christmas music. <laughs> nah, that was good. And this is a Christmas film as well. It's not something... It's not like... A lot of people say it's you know one of the best Christmas movies. I never think of Die Hard as a Christmas movie, ever. You don't watch it at Christmas? No, never. Really? I watch it every year at Christmas. Really? Yeah. There, I do hear people say it's not a Christmas movie. I hear... Probably more people say it's a Christmas movie than well, not. It is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Like, it is. It's, li- it's, a, it's, it is. it's set at Christmas, and Christmas is discussed a few times, and there's a lot of Christmas music and humming throughout. Yeah. A Christmas movie doesn't have to be a family-friendly film. Well, that, yeah, I guess that's what separates it from every other Christmas movie. So, McLean head, heads into the Nakatomi Plaza, where the receptionist asks him to search in the pin pad. He sees that... There's no McLean there. Goes back and sees Gennaro. He seems somewhat peeved about that. By the way, real dick move from this security guard for making him search for Holly in the system. Then when he says, I'm looking for Holly, he goes, oh yeah, 30 or 4. They're the only people left in the building. If there's only one party, <laughs> why make John search on the keyboard for it? Why did he just say, yep, yeah, just go on to the 30 or 4. You here for the party? Going up, mate. <laughs> this, this scene really is here to establish the feud that's coming up between the McLean and the Gennaro. And yep. Again, setting up these subplots that this is going to take further on into the movie about Gennaro being used to, you know, in front of Hans so that Hans doesn't know that they have a relationship. All these little things that are just coming along so tight. It's really good. So, John goes up to the 30th floor and meets Takagi, a very lovely Japanese man, who takes him over to Holly. 
And then they all go into Holly's office where Alice is casually doing coke on her desk. Yeah, Takagi, uh, yeah, good bloke, good boss. Seems to shy away from obvious illegal activity like snorting cocaine. Doesn't yep. seem too phased about it. Yep. So after we get the casual banter of snorting cocaine, which McLean does know what's going on. He does see the... Well, he's a cop. He says, you missed a spot. Busts him straight away. <laughs> Holly walks into her office. And you just see the the hint of relief on Holly's face that she's there. Just that that little little spark there. She's she's glad to see him, and that music gives that little twinge there, as she gives the slightly happy but emotional. John, restrained. Yes. Yeah, and after that, Alice forces Holly to show John the uh, watch that they've given her for Christmas, obviously, and uh, he's quite proud of the fact that it's a Rolex. Yep, he's kind of insulting McLean's social status as well. Very much insulting John here and putting himself above John in every way he can possibly. Show him the watch. Later. Well, go on, show him. What are you, embarrassed? It's just a small token of appreciation for all our hard work. It's a Rolex. I'm sure I'll see you later. And as you can see, there is the setup with the I'll see it later. You'll see it later when he rips it off. Yeah, exactly. R- rips it off Holly's hand. Exactly. That little Rolex comes back in yeah. the final scene. And this is the sort of thing that's so... It's so small, but it's so pivotal coming back later on. There's yeah. so many things like that in this movie. So we see Holly take John into Alice's private office. She asks him to stay at the house for the kids. There's a nice little moment there, but McLean can't help himself. Has to mention the last name. Someone insulted. She's using Gennaro. They get into a fight. Yeah, and it's. I, th- I think it's great when she goes... John starts talking to himself, and we'll get used to this throughout the movie because he does it a hell of a lot, but he starts talking to himself about he's so aggressive with her in the fight, and then as soon as she walks out, he knows he shouldn't have done it. He regrets it. That's great, John. Good job. Very mature. Yeah, he's kicking himself for bringing up the petty argument, which when things were going so good, which we've all been prone to do every once in a while, I guess. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Also good use to get Holly out into the party so John can stay in the room setting up the chance to escape coming up. Yep. Okay, so at this point we're introduced to the terrace. We get a change in score. We get the big truck driving into the underground car park. So after the truck is driven downstairs, the car drives to the front. A couple of so-called terrorists walk in and very casually shoot the guard that's there or the receptionist, as you would call him. Yeah, nice change in tone here from happy... Christmas drama to terrorist action film. Yeah, and like, and this shows really clearly how cold and uncaring these people are with other human life. They are literally joking and talking about sports while they kill this man in cold blood. Yeah, and leaps over the counter and kicks him out of his chair. No, no regard for human life, maybe? No. So the truck arrives in the parking garage as more men appear and we get the establishing shot of Hans Gruber, played by Alan friggin Rickman yeah one of the greatest movie villains I think I've ever seen yeah breakout role for him a theatre actor beforehand this is his first major role major Hollywood role yeah it's his first movie yep winds up playing like you said one of the greatest villains of all time Uh, is this his best or most iconic role or do I you... think Snape is more iconic at this point than Hans Gruber I do because Snape was in what eight movies and is been seen Many, many, many more times as Snape than as Hans Gruber. But would, Hans Gruber is definitely his best role. I would love to hear a poll on this. Let us know on Facebook, email, or Twitter. Who, who is the more iconic role from Alan Rickman? Is it Gruber or is it Snape? 
I really like your thoughts. I think it's Gruber. Oh, I think it's Gruber too. But I just you just said it was Snape. No, I think for the majority of people it would be Snape. Ah. For me, it's definitely Gruber. All right then. That kind of walked it back there. <laughs> no, I didn't walk. Kind <laughs> of the best of both worlds here. <laughs> so we see all the bad guys go to work. They disguise themselves as security. They shut down the Nakatomi Plaza access from the outside. Not to mention prevent anyone in the building from leaving. And we're introduced to the brothers Carl and Tony as well. Carl was the one who shot the receptionist in the head earlier on. Yep. He's definitely the the coldest of them. Carl is definitely the the second in command here. Yeah, without doubt. And honestly, I didn't know what Tony's name was. (laughs) What? (laughs) Carl Carl and the other guy, the lanky brother. You obviously weren't paying attention when Carl was talking about his brother, Tony. No. We do see Carl's recklessness from the start here when he saw him through the pipes before random brother Tony has finished connecting the wires. Dean... If he doesn't get that done in time, is this whole thing screwed? If he doesn't connect those wires and Tony saw through those pipes, is 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 that the end? I mean, what were they doing? Well, they were cutting the phone lines. They were cutting the phone lines and... and but what was the brother doing? I don't know. you got to imagine this would be meticulously planned and thought out, this, this, this paper. And Carl just runs in with his uh, chainsaw and... Uh, no time to wait. Is this one of these things where they just get the little brother to go do something that's not important? And they say, all right, let's just get this done. And he's trying to do his important work. Yeah, yeah just keep him busy. And this is where we get the payoff from the aeroplane scene when you see Bruce Willis... Taking his shoes off. Doing the fist with his toes. And he mutters that little, son of a bitch. Fist with the toes. <laughs> he tries to give... He gives Argyle a call, but it's cut short as, they, as the bad guys have cut the phone lines. Yep. And immediately after that, McLean hears gunshots out the door, screaming, gets into instinct, immediately grabs his gun, has a sneak out the door, and he starts to see pandemonium out there. And he does the quick instinct thing where he looks out and he sees an opening to escape. And as the bad guys enter the room a couple of seconds later, he's gone. Yep. Nah, very, um, very smooth editing here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Well, I don't know. Honestly, I felt when I watched this bit, you got Bruce Willis peeking out the door with a terrorist walking towards a room. I thought, firstly, the terrorist is going to be able to see him peeking out through the through The, the terrorist door. isn't looking. He's about to walk into a room. You don't think he's seeing if the door's open or not. Then he sees that there's a topless lady next door, so he goes back and has a look. <laughs> and this is a matter of seconds. Seconds later, turns his head and goes in there, and he's gone. Yeah. He's already down the elevator. Smooth. So out of the elevator comes Hans Gruber. He addresses the party, criticising the corporation, finds Takagi. Finds Takagi with a very detailed description of his life so far. And he's walking around looking at random Asian guys as if he doesn't know what Takagi looks like. Surely he would have had a photo of this guy with the information he has of him. i got nothing to say there. Good point. (laughs) (laughs) So we see Hans taking Takagi to the upper level offices. And this is where Hans starts humming, being casual. Alan Rickman, his facial expressions in this are so good. Now, Hans is humming Ode to Joy. This this is the theme of the antagonist here. It's used throughout the film. Every time the bad guys are on the screen, you hear it in the background, that, but it never gets to that point. The only time that we do hear the, the whole thing is later on when they open that vault. But you, you can hear it gently throughout the movie every time they're on screen. Yeah, it's subtle, it's not overbearing, but it's there. Yeah. This is where we find Hans wants access to the computer system in the building so he can access the $640 million 
worth of bearer bonds. We finally get the antagonist motivation. What we're led to believe was a terrorist attack turns out to be a very well thought out high price theft with Hans muttering, Who said we were terrorists? Now the reason why they didn't want to refer to as terrorists in the film was because we want to be, we want to like these people. Terror, this is supposed to be a fun film and labeling these people as terrorists really puts a dark tone on the table. We, 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 I think now it does. I think in 1988 it wasn't that dark. Calling someone, calling a group of people terrorists, we're supposed they to. They are referred to many times in this movie as terrorists by the news, the newspeople. Exactly, and when we get to it, the newspeople and the police are awful in this movie. They're the bad guys in this thing. Oh, hot take. Yeah, we'll get to it. But we're supposed to like and enjoy these antagonists, and calling them terrorists is going to make it much more harder. They are thieves. They are robbers. They are heistmen. At this point, we see John McClane uh, enter the same floor that Hans and Takagi are on. He sees him. He's got his gun drawn. And John can hear the conversation they're having. And Takagi insists he doesn't know the code. And Hans threatens he's going to count to three. There will not be a four, as he says. Anyway, so he does He does kill him. It's very casual for him. It's really not a big deal. But I like how he kills him and then turns to his technician saying... Now, you can break the code, yeah. can't you? It's like, surely you would you would ask that before you kill this guy. <laughs> and we get a real... I mean, I know, they're only, I know they're only robbers, but surely uh, some torture isn't off the table for him. <laughs> no, nah, he, uh, he, Takagi tried to call his bluff, and it failed pretty horribly for him. So, see you later, Takagi. Nice knowing you. We also get a really great reaction from Bruce Willis at that gunshot, that jolt, that shock. Fear, mm. uh, the realization that this isn't just a you know a simple kidnapping and uh, ransom. They mean, they mean business. Yeah, this is life or death now. I will also say the actual the way it's filmed, the blood is so prominent when they when they shoot him in the head. Yeah. Like it's really bright red. Yeah, and it's really bright red blood throughout this whole movie. And the brains just bang. Yeah, under, bang, under the, big splat onto the glass. Yeah, this is not your family friendly film. So as McLean gets out of there, he gets up a few floors. And now he's trying to think what to do. He's a one-man one man show now. He needs to think quick on his feet. He ends up pulling a fire alarm, which, you know, I understand he's trying to get the attention from the outside world, but it does compromise his anonymity, and the bad guys now know what floor he's on as well. That is true. But he does, you've missed, he does do one key thing before he pulls the fire alarm to try and get help. He mentally wills Argyle to call the police. I didn't, I forgot, I didn't, I must have missed that. that. He's like, come on, Argyle, call the cops. And And then it smash cuts to Argyle, chatting to, I assume, his missus, with music pumping with the big fluffy teddy bear in the back of his limo. Good old comic book, Argyle. (laughs) As we said, the bad guys now know what floor that John McClane's on, and they send Carl's brother, (laughs) who I'm led to believe his name is Tony. That is correct, sir. Down alone. To uh, take care of him. They also do call 911 to report a false alarm. And you can see McLean looking out the window, desperate. He's, he's, talking, to the, he's talking to the truck. He's like, come on, come on, yes, yes. And then when they turn around, he's like, no, no. He's, he's, he's so deflated. He had his chance and that was it. This is where Tony comes onto the floor after a little bit of searching around and hiding. McLean does get the drop on him. They have their little conversation. But what, what is McLean doing here? He, he's got him and then he... Elbows him in the head. Is he trying to knock him out? What's he trying to do here? Because once he elbows him in the head, th- that's it. The fight's he's, on. He, he's, he's got him dead to rights. He's got him at gunpoint. 
And instead of getting closer to him, he needs to be taking steps back. But you're right. He does start the fight. Yeah. He throws the elbow and then immediately throws his gun behind him, which I thought was very odd. This also establishes that John is a rule breaker because he says, it's the cops. He says, oh, you won't hurt me. You're a police officer. Then whack. You know? <laughs> you have rules. That's what the captain keeps telling me. Whack. He, he hits him. I also think that this is showing that McLean is prone to make mistakes as well. He is human. He's in a an improbable position here, and he's thinking on his feet and maybe cracking this guy in the head. Probably wasn't the best thing to do, but, you know, obviously he does it. They get into a fight. They end up wrestling down a flight of stairs, and Tony slash blonde guy breaks his neck. Now, is there a Wilhelm scream here? I think I think I, there was. I, really? I think it is. I think it is. I'm not sure how far back this Wilhelm scream goes, but I swear it was there when his neck breaks. Did McLean break his neck, or did he break his neck from the fall? He broke his neck from the fall because he, he did not mean to break his neck there. Because McLean says he did break his neck later on in the film to Carl when he's trying to antagonize him. Well, he did, but it was accidental. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So we see now that McLean has a walkie-talkie, and he has a machine gun, but unfortunately, the shoes don't fit his feet, and this is keeping up with the fact that McLean needs to be barefoot for later on. If they didn't establish this right here, I'm sure there'd be a lot of people going, why didn't he just put these shoes on? Then he wouldn't be barefoot later on. And they set that up again later on where with the next bad guy, where McLean tests the shoes again. Yeah, this next scene for me is really iconic. McLean... You see, you see him setting up something in the elevator with Tony, and then he lets the elevator go down. And you see, you see like a point of view shot from inside the elevator out onto the floor of the bad guy turning around, expecting to see Tony, and is just shocked at what he sees. You hear one of the hostages scream, and Hans runs over, and he pulls down the shirt to reveal, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho. Oh. <laughs> it is so good. It is, it is so it's good. great. I think this is also a point where we start to see one of McLean's traits, which is antagonism. You know, with the conversation to Hans on the walkie-talkie, the mentioning of his brother's death to Carl, even the scene with the dead body, he's trying to get the antagonist rattled, perhaps make a mistake, which they somewhat do here, because McLean is actually on top of the elevator, eavesdropping on them, where they have a general conversation about... Their, with their plan that's going on. He gets rough, rough counts of their numbers. He learns a few of their names and finds out that they're German. Very good stuff that a, a good cop would be prone to do. Yeah, just your standard New York City cop stuff there. Yeah, now we see Holly and Alice on the floor. They're seeing what's going on with the terrorists and they're, uh, they realise that John's out there responsible for what's going on and is alive. And Holly seems somewhat optimistic and maybe excited is not the right word, but happy of what's going on, that he might be saving them. And Alice is not happy at all. Yeah, Holly's still caring about her husband here, you can see. And this little spat from Alice is going to set up his choice later on in the movie. I mean, if this wasn't here and just the next scene with Alice comes up, it would have been a little weird. But we do see that Alice is a bit annoyed about what's happening here. So we get to McLean making an emergency call from the roof of the walkie-talkie. Hans and Carl overhear it and immediately know his location. Again, is it a, another rookie mistake from McLean? Or I, is it just I don't a... think this is a mistake. I think he knew that they would be able to hear it and he was happy to accept those consequences. I just can't believe the reaction from the operator on 911. I just think it's a prank. It's just a prank, bro. Yeah, the operator accuses him of not realising that this channel is reserved for emergencies only. And I, I love John's response here. No shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> It's classic. It's funny, It's but it's 
it's funny and light at the same time conveying how serious the situation is. So while he's still on the phone to him, the bad guys do reach him on the roof and start firing at him immediately. At which point the operator hears the gunfire, throws the headphones off her because it's so loud, and casually says to the person next to him, Oh, see if there's a black and white you could send to do a drive-by. She just heard gunfire. What sort, of, what sort of operator is this? It's Christmas Eve. She doesn't care. She just wants to go home. She's working. <laughs> do your job. So this is where we are introduced to Officer Al Pal. 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 He's a pal to everyone. <laughs> he gets the call for Nakatomi. Yeah, this is the only cop we're supposed to like in this film. He's the voice of reason. He's the only one who seems to have an idea of what's going on inside from the outside. And actually, fun fact, when the police dispatcher tells Sergeant Powell to investigate the Nakatomi building, she tells him it's a code two. Do you know what that is? No. It refers to an urgent incident where sirens are not to be used. That is why he doesn't come up with the sirens blaring. Urgent incident, no sirens. Would you describe our pal's arrival at the building as urgent? Do you, would you describe anything about Al Pal as urgent? Well, he reverses a car pretty urgently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when when it's funny, well, I didn't even notice this. When Al, when Pal, <laughs> what do we call Al Pal? When Al Pal walks outside and realizes how close he is to the Nakatomi building, you can actually see the flashes of light on the roof of gunfire very clearly. Yes, yes, I did saw you pick that up too. On that? Yeah, I did. So the gun battle keeps going on between Carl and McLean. McLean manages to, manages to outmaneuver them, but in the process he does trap himself inside an unused elevator shaft where he jumps from one duct to another. Now, this was actually a mistake by the stuntman. He was actually supposed to grab the first vent as it was planned, but he actually slipped and fell, They and they used that shot anyway, and it was just edited together to have McLean grab the next one. So that actually wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> Worked out all right for him, though, didn't it? It did, as he grabs the vent further down. But unfortunately, Carl does figure out where he is by using McLean's lighter down the shaft to see where he's gone. Heads yeah. down there and starts spraying bullets into the air duck McLean's in, barely missing him. And just as he's about to find out where he is, Carl, summoned away by Hans. But I didn't understand that, because he actually does get his gun. He's going behind him each time, popping up the vents to make sure there's no weight on him. He actually goes to slightly in front of John, pops it up a bit, and then gets called away and pops it down and goes out. Surely he would have felt the difference in weight when he popped up that last one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree with that. He did, I don't think he popped it up. There was heavier there. He popped it up in front of him, not on him. So this is where our pal enters the Nakatomi Plaza and the imposter security guard plays it off, claiming that they're just having problems with false alarms all night. McLean does spot Powell's car from here. And while attempting to break a window to alert Powell, McLean is fired upon by two new bad guys. Now, there's a horrible cliche here by this bad guy standing on top of the tables and just shooting and just missing it. Like, he's right there and yeah. just and fires through the, through the table yeah. and never hits him. And you could even fire, like, he's firing so directly above the table. This table is really long. Yeah. <laughs> he could fire under the table. Like, stop walking with him, and you could see him going under yeah. it in front of you. But I do love the old-school practical action here, the blood squibs that come up. Welcome, welcome sight from all the CGI action you get these days. They don't do them. They don't make them like they used to. Also, fun fact, the break, the, the scene where McLean is trying to smash the window, that required a couple of takes because the glass window was too strong to break from a single blow. <laughs> in fact, the glass window was so strong that Bruce Willis actually ended up breaking the chair before he broke the window. Really? Yeah. They have a, a little scene in that in the making of documentary. 
So Powell finds nothing wrong at the plaza and leaves. And noticing that he is actually leaving, McLean thinks on his feet and throws the dead body out the window, lands on Powell's car. Powell shits himself, loses basically. It. <laughs> loses it. And we get, we get, so Powell loses it, slams on the reverse, flies out the back, crashes his car. So it's left hanging off the edge of this uh, embankment, I guess. And this is where we get the great McLean clip. Welcome to the party, pal! See, for me, this this movie is a perfect three-act movie where we've got the, the first act, the setup, the second act, the confrontation, which is roughly where it begins here, and the third act, the resolution, which probably begins roughly where Hans gets the detonators back. For me, this is one of the, the best structured films I've seen, like... The, the perfect three-act movie, and this movie does it perfectly. It flows very well. Yeah. There's never a boring moment in this film at all. So this is where we're introduced to Richard Thornburg, news reporter and overall wanker. He is probably one of four, maybe five, depending on your opinion, unlikable people in this movie, and it's quite funny how none of these people are, actu- are the actual antagonists. They're uh, all... who, who are the five? So the, the, the four people that I'm talking about is Thornburg, police chief... Deputy Police Chief, Dwayne Robinson. And the two FBI agents, Johnson and Johnson. Special Agent Johnson. No relation. <laughs> Who's your fifth, Alice? Yeah. Okay. So the police start showing up in droves. Hans assures his man everything's fine. Hans clearly has a well-thought-out plan here, citing that it's not only was it inevitable, but it's also necessary. So he, ha- he this is all part of his plan. He knows what's going on. He doesn't miss a beat. He- he's got it sorted. Yeah, at this point we get the first time of McLean and Hans talking to each other in one of their many one-on-ones that are fantastic back and forth they have. Yeah, and this this quote is just one of the greatest quotes ever. Absolutely phenomenal. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah, as, as I've already said, it's it's in many lists of greatest movie quotes of all time. It's fantastic. It's been repeated so many... It's, it's repeated in all the Die Hard movies coming up. Yeah. It's repeated in other... Parodies. Yeah, parodies, terrible, movie, terrible movies, yep. Expendables. Oh my god, give me a break! <laughs> like this is the original. This is the OG. I remember this... even even in the uh, the old games of Die Hard, they would insert that quote throughout. So after a bit of back and forth, this is where we're introduced to Deputy Police Chief Dwayne Robinson. And could we have a bigger douchebag in this movie? Yeah, he's a douchebag in every single role that he's ever been. Yeah, in. from Breakfast Club. He plays douchey principal. The mask. He he's not. I wouldn't say he's a douchebag. He's he's the friend, isn't he? Still a douchebag. But he's not douchebag like this. Maybe he'll always be a douchebag. <laughs> now, yeah, another douchey police captain who doesn't listen to anyone and is in over his head. We're obviously not meant to like him, but you can actually kind of see the shift in his personality from egotistical boss to dopey one-liner when the FBI people arrive. Yeah, he really does change when the FBI guys get there. Yeah, In fact, Roger Ebert was one of the few critics to give this a negative review at the time. And the main reason he did that was because he hated this character. He said this character was unnecessary, useless, dumb, and he prevented the movie from working. No, I disagree with that. I think he's a great contrast to how great Powell is. See, how how much of an arsehole this Dwayne Robinson is the more arsehole he is, the greater it makes our pal look. Especially when pal is always right. He's the one that's he's like I said, he's the voice of reason, and he's the voice of reason. And Robinson is just in over his head. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's just trying to act like he knows everything. Yeah, and Powell's pretty smart here. He's he's trying to explain to Robinson that he thinks he's a police officer because of these subtle things that John has said to him. Yeah, and all that Robinson says says back to him is Jesus Christ, pal. He could be a fucking bartender for all we know. <laughs> 
So now we have Holly and Hans having a conversation. Holly goes in to see Hans to request bathroom breaks for them and asks that the pregnant lady be taken care of. In this scene, it's very clear that Holly is not acting frightened or intimidated by this guy. And you can see that Hans really respects that. And this is where we also get the continuation of the last name and the turned down picture from earlier on, the subplot there. Yeah. No, and it and it is it is clear that he's in her office. He turns around, he sees pictures of her with the kids, but no husband. Yes. So there's no reason for him to think that she's there with anyone or that this guy that's running around killing his fellow bad guys have any connection together. Yeah, exactly. We also get a, a nice quick little scene of Argyle still parked under the building. Over here's the news broadcast of what's happening all around him. Now... Yeah, pretty irrelevant scene. Really just reminding the audience that he's still there for well, later that's, on. Well, that's kind of what I like about this. Though. So you see, Bruce Willis w- was on Moonlighting at the time, the TV show. And he would shoot that television series during the day and then come to f- the Fox lot in the evening and work on this film. And his exhaustion from this schedule, it forced the production to beef up the roles for the other characters like Powell and Alice and Argyle and Thornburg, giving them more personality and screen time. And this just ended up being posit- a positive for me, in this, in my opinion. Uh, we get all these more well-rounded, fleshed-out mm. secondary characters. These secondary characters are unforgettable. Yeah. Like they're, all, they're all classic. Exactly. They're all... They, they don't... Like, when you'd actually put all their screen time together, it's not that much. But every bit they have, they are setting up and reiterating who they are and what their character traits are again and again and again. And they're fantastic. Yeah, and that's probably why some of them end up appearing in the later sequels as well. Probably struggling to get work elsewhere. <laughs> Looking at you, Al Pal. No, nah, I shouldn't say that. He was in like a million episodes of Family Matters. Playing a cop. See? <laughs> it's what he does. He's... <laughs> so we get some more scenes of Robinson and Pal arguing about whether or not they're going to go in, but of course Robinson's in charge, so they hit the building with the spotlights. They're going in, and like we were talking about, you see the whole ineptness of the authorities here, in a very like I didn't, this is the the first time I've noticed this, but they they add on to that in this very blink and you'll miss it scene with the SWAT team. They're going they they're heading up into the, the plaza and they run through these rose bushes and they get pricked by yeah, them. I noticed like, that too. Ah, ah. It's like just to make sure the audience knows these guys aren't great. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. I'd never noticed that before. These guys are in <laughs> way over their head. Um and. Uh, I think it's the intention of the movie, but I'm somehow rooting for these bad guys antagonists to win at this point in time. Do you reckon that was actually scripted? That oh, cop runs through Rosebush and gets pricked? I think either way. I reckon way, it would have been an accident and the director thought it was great and kept it in. Either way, it's fantastic. It really is. So this is where we get the big SWAT team throwdown with the, the bad guys here. But we can see that the bad guys are all over this. They, they know all their movements. They know what they're going to be doing. And they quickly get the jump on them. And quickly set up a rocket launcher. Yep, for their armoured car that's coming up. And we get, we get sort of a, a, uh, a, comment, a sports commentator perspective from Theo, who has the eyes on all the security cameras, telling the guys what to do, where to do it. Yeah, made it very fun to watch. I really love his quote. Oh my god, the quarterback is toast! So we can see as well that McLean is watching this and powerless to do anything. He's begging Hans to stop. Hans keeps going with it. So McLean does decide to take matters into his own hands, grabs the C4 that he's stolen, wires it to a chair with a computer, throws it down the elevator shaft, yep. and you get this massive explosion that, yeah. that wipes out the whole floor. And what I love about it, not only is it a great explosion, a great scene, the fact that McLean isn't invincible here. The fireball shoots up the elevator 
and comes back at him and he gets that oh shit <laughs> it is I love it it's yeah. priceless yeah. like again showing that he's he's human like these things would yeah. happen yeah. yeah so after all this commotion this is where Alice has had enough he's fed up he's going to use his charm and his negotiation skills to save the day yeah so he goes in he speaks to Hans about trying to offer up McLean on a platter for him we get the fantastic line Hans Bobby I'm your white knight Booby. Booby. <laughs> like he called Hans Booby. <laughs> yeah. And this, that line was actually ad-libbed. The look on Rickman's face is real. <laughs> that, that puzzled, what the fuck? Like, who is this guy? <laughs> Booby. You don't know who I am? Love it. <laughs> so we have a quick little scene with McLean and Powell bonding. All these little scenes in between the action are really great. These little moments they have, really good character building on both sides. The, the camaraderie they have, it's very well done. But, Unfortunately, it gets interrupted by Hans saying he has someone he would like to... like Someone McLean. very special to him. And obviously, <laughs> McLean thinks it's Holly. Yeah. But he gets the, hey, John. Hey, John boy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> He's like, Alice? <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to work out what this guy is doing yeah. and what he has told him. Um, he realizes pretty quickly that Hans is about to kill this guy, especially, yeah. when, especially when Alice says... Um, this is radio, not television. Put away the gun. Yeah. And <laughs> McLean does say... Um, McLean is begging Ellis to tell Hans that he doesn't actually know him. Yeah. That he's making it up because he knows what's coming. Ellis is in way over his head. He still thinks it's it's a game. But then at the point where McLean refuses, you see the look on Ellis's face that something's wrong. And this would be that perfect moment when... You ever see those memes that come up these days where it's that... It's at this point... Ellis realised he yeah. fucked up. And you see, look at his face. He he knows he's dead to rights. He has a quick drink of his Coke and then bang. See you later, Alice. Nice yeah. knowing you. So he's not in the movie much at all. He's got a few key scenes, yeah. but they're so good. The, co- the cocaine, the Hans, Booby. Even, even the little bit where, where the terrorists bring in a drink and he gives this, this little hand motion like, yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> Just put the drink there for me, thank you. Yeah. It's like he has no idea what he's doing. Nah, a really good character for such small time he had. Yeah, so the police hear the entire incident and Robinson blames McLean, but Powell defends him. Again, just showing Robinson is just a complete douche nugget. <laughs> and, the, and this is where Hans contacts Robinson, demands these ridiculous releases of these international terrorists. Like We're, we're really supposed to like these guys here. Yeah. It shows a lot here that they're basically dicking around with the police with these fake demands, laughing yeah. it up. Yeah, even Carl is like <laughs> looking at Hans like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, oh, I read it in a magazine. Yeah, really, <laughs> really fun. These guys, yeah, this, this, even though they're the bad guys, they're super likable bad guys. Yeah, they really are. And this is where we get FBI agents, Johnson & Johnson, no relation. They arrive, they take command. What a pair of flogs, <laughs> these, yeah. these two. These guys do not do anything helpful. Nah, so to me, these two and Robinson, these are the guys you're rooting against. They're inept, egotistical, annoying. Hans and his crew are so suave, enjoyable to watch, you can't hate them. You enjoy watching them. You're probably rooting for them to succeed against these dopey authorities. Unfortunately, you know, McLean's in the mix, and he's the actual protagonist, and a fantastic one at that, and he's the one you're rooting for. Hmm. So this is where Hans says he's going to go look for the... He's going to go and check on the explosives on the roof. And, and he... honestly, this I think this is my favourite scene in the movie. 
this whole banter between McLean and Hans. Yeah. The yeah. the change in character, the acting from Alan Rickman here when he realizes that the only it's not one of the terrorists that's pointing a gun at him, it's someone else. I better act scared. It is it's so impressive. Well, this scene wasn't actually supposed to be in the film. Wow. It was put into the script after Alan Rickman was found to be very proficient at mimicking American accents. <laughs> and the filmmakers had they had been looking for a way to get these two characters to meet before the climax, and they thought, this is perfect to use yeah. Rickman's talents here. And, and they it's made unbelievable. Up this yeah, really good. So they have some general conversation about you know the bare feet and yep. having a good laugh, and they give their names, and Hans gives the name Bill Clay because he saw the word clay off the directory's board. I mean, is this is this Hans? Is he related to Kaiser Soze or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he pays attention, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah it's almost... Like, and you see, like, McLean look at the board and nod like, okay, this guy is who he says he is because that name's there. No, I felt like he... at the, It's at that point that he's like, okay, I'm going to test this guy because as soon as he says that, he offers the gun. He, he, he plays around with the gun and he gives it to Are him. Are you saying that if he hadn't have said that name, if he said a name that wasn't on the board... He would have given him a loaded gun. I don't know. That's but he sees the word clay on there because in I feel like he's suspicious the whole time and he was never gonna give him a gun loaded. I think that the clay bit was the reason he did this because if you look at it, McLean is facing the directories. Hans is away from it now. He's he's seen this before. So he sees this clay and he's like, Okay, I'll test this guy. Gives him a gun. Mm. Immediately Hans is on the walkie talkie, puts the gun up, like you said before, comes back to it, I'm gonna count to three. Like he did with Takagi? Yeah. And then click. Click, click, click. Yeah. Oh, no bullets. Think I'm fucking stupid, Hans. <laughs> you were saying. <laughs> so, no, yeah. it, it is a perfect scene. It is so, it's so smooth. It doesn't go for long, but it, it shows how great Alan Rickman is yeah. in his performance and how clever McLean is. And so, Carl and the other guys come up, and I, I love this reaction from Willis. Just that scream as he just <laughs> fires the weapon. Like yep. he's he's running, he's firing, he's desperate, he's scared, he's he's just he's just trying to survive. That ah, like he's yeah. this could be it for him, and he yeah. just he just runs. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Runs across the glass. Yeah, and this is where we get that no shoes payoff. Yep, we get the uh, the big, deep, and meaningful scene of the uh, the movie where he's pulling the glass out. He's almost in tears, and he's speaking to Pal. I had an accident. Drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your captain, flip with the car. I shot a kid. He was 13 years old. Oh, it was dark, I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. to draw my gun on anybody again. Sorry, man. Hey, man. How could you know? I feel like shit anyway. Yeah, again, more set up for future character resolution. I mean, McLean's reactions here are fantastic. I love how he cracks the joke. But he, and he becomes so devastated when he, he realizes he's made Pal relive this horrible memory. And he's not even caring about his feet. Like, he's so devastated mm. about mm. this. Like, his feet are destroyed through yeah. all this glass. He doesn't care about that. He's just he's just devastated that he's he's got power to relive this memory. We actually have a scene uh, just before this where 
Carl comes back and he smashes up the place and we get that little that little quote from Holly. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. And we just get that little look into her psyche. About yeah, she, some, knows, she knows who he is. Yeah. She's lived with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the FBI go through their playbook and order the building's power shut down. And this is exactly what Hans had planned the whole time. The circuits that cannot be cut are cut automatically in response to a terrorist incident. You ask for miracles, dear. I give you the FBI. So after they do that, the vault opens. They have access to that 600... That great music. Yeah, that Ode to Joy. This is where the, the peak of Han's success comes in. Yep. The joy, like... The Ode to Joy. The joy is the stuff in the safe. They are ecstatic and opening up each each metal box filled with the Barabons. Money it, on money on money. And this whole scene is great from the lighting behind the, the bad guys to the, the angle where they're, they're looking up at them to show their dominance. Adding in that huge explosion of that Ode to Joy at the end. A fantastic scene. Especially finished off with the the shot of the of the dickhead FBI agents that running down the hill going, oh, how good are we? They're probably shitting their pants right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, just <laughs> superb. Loved it. So this is where Hans contacts the FBI, completes the rest of his plan. When they touch down, we'll blow the roof. They'll spend a month sifting through the rubble, and by the time they figure out what went wrong, we'll be sitting on a beach earning 20%. Yeah, and then we cut back to McLean in the bathroom, still picking glass out of his foot. He starts looking back on his life, thinking he's probably not going to make it out at this point, and he asks Powell to find his wife and apologise for him. Tell her that, um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. Great vulnerability from McLean. Again, keeping up that this is an everyman stuck in an extreme situation, basically just trying to stay alive. Yeah, and when push comes to shove, what he's thinking about and what he's caring about most is his wife. Yeah. And it's very relatable. Uh, Yeah, I agree completely. So McLean heads out. He does find the roof rigged with explosives, but before he gets a chance to warn Pal about it, up comes Carl with a gun to his mouth. I don't understand why he just doesn't kill him right here. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Maybe he wants to make him suffer. I just think it's silly. Yeah. You could have killed him straight away. But no, McLean gets the drop on him, knocks the gun out of his hand, and this fight breaks out. It is... Oh, it's epic. It's so brutal. It's so bloody. Like, it's unstylized. Like, McLean just... He just brutalizes him. He just throwing yeah. haymakers. And it just doesn't getting... feel choreographed nah, at all. He's just going for broke here. It's so good. Just laying into him whenever he can. Fantastic start to this, this scene coming up. So in the middle of this... We see that Hans is packing up, getting ready to finish off his plan as he hears the interview on the TV with Holly's kids by Dickhead Thornburn. And that's when he discovers that Holly is actually Mrs. McLean and married to John with the two kids. Shoots the gun, sends the hostages to the roof, takes Holly with him. Again, getting our conclusion to the one of these little subplots, setting up the dynamics between Holly and Thornburn, which is actually going to pay off at the end of the film. And in the sequel as well. So we cut back to the fight between Carl and McLean, and this is where Carl does manage to grab McLean's gun and gets him in the shoulder. Yeah, McLean gets shot. Yeah, and you get that, uh, as he gets mm. that, that real pain as yeah. he hits him. Blood sprays on the door as he runs out. Yep. So Carl follows him out. They they get into the, they get into even more of a fight, 
And this is where you get that, you sh- should have heard your brother squeal when I broke your fucking neck. Like that bit, just that antagonism. Yeah. And then he, he takes such joy in it as yeah. well. <laughs> and McLean gets what I think, besides Yippie I think this is one of my favorite line in the whole movie. Yeah, I I heard that. I don't think I've ever realized he says that. I'm going to kill oh. you, I'm going to cook you, then fucking eat you. It's I unreal. Love it. I love it. It came from nowhere. I love it. It's so brutal from yeah, him. Yeah, it's so random yet threatening, and it's ah, oh, it's just so good. And it's at this point that McLean gets the chains, wraps him around, wraps it around his throat, and throws him over the edge, basically hangs him. And maims him. Gently. Maims him? No. Is he not maimed? <laughs> what? <laughs> So after that's done, McLean does head up to the roof. And as he gets up there, he does try to get all the hostages off the roof, but they can't hear him. Starts shooting the, the gun, and that's when the, the FBI. FBI show up, think he's a terrorist, yep. start taking pot shots at him. Yep, but at least it does the job. Everyone runs off the roof at that point. We see the hostages running down the stairs, seeing Carl's body still hanging there. Let's put a pin in that. Yep. So we see McLean struggling up here, trying to avoid all these shots from the FBI. He knows the the bolt, like the, the explosives about to go off, so he does something very improvised. Very and, unexpected. Yep, yeah, ties a fire hose. Very MacGyver-esque. Yeah, around him. And standing on that roof ledge with the fire hose around him. I love how he's just muttering to, to himself. He's that... Yeah. Oh, what are you? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> How'd you get into this shit? He's good. It grounds. It grounds yeah. what he's doing because what he's doing is so crazy. But yeah. because the film and John are acknowledging it, it makes it more plausible. Yeah, he's he's that person. Like he he's up there. He's like, I promise, I'll never think about going to the building again. <laughs> and the best one, oh god, please don't let me die. Like you don't hear that from any of those action stars at that point. Yeah, because it is so vulnerable. Yeah, and in the past. Prior to this movie, majority of the action stars were just indestructible. That's right. No fear. And then in comes Bruce Willis, and he's the everyman, and that's why everyone loves this film. Yeah. So they blow the roof. The FBI guys do get what they deserved. And you do hear Robinson getting a little bit of that comic relief character. We're going to need some more FBI's guys, which <laughs> I thought was a little bit funny. Yeah, it's good that he has some sort of redeeming moment. Yeah, he does get another one in a little bit. But you see McLean leap off the building, gets... Saved by the the mounting as he stops mid free fall, he does manage to kick himself off the glass, shoot shoot the glass through, lands inside. But just when you think he's safe, mm. down comes the fire hose, yep. and, and the weight of it falling makes him basically slide out towards the edge. Does manage to get it off, and you get that great look from Bruce Willis, that tiny little bit of fear and that yep. relief, yep. and maybe a little bit of hint, of, maybe a little bit of mental breakdown in there as well. He's just, he's gone yep. through so much shit, and it's just, he's, it's showing all over. It was just there's that so great many, little look. There's so many moments in this film where other films would have stopped there. Other films would have stopped when he'd broken through the glass and gone into the room. This movie just does not stop. It keeps going. Yep. You have the fire hose drop down, and suddenly he's thrown back into another life-threatening situation, yep. and he's got to try and get out of the knot he's tied himself in. The little things, they're all... Yeah, oh, it happens yeah. throughout this whole movie. Yeah. Okay, so now we cut to Argyle back in the, or still in the car park underground. He spots Theo backing up an ambulance out of one of their trucks, realizes that uh, something's not right. So he floors his limo and crashes into the ambulance and gives Theo a good right hook. Yeah, you'd think you'd think the crash alone would uh, knock out Theo, but no, nah, he, he jumps out, has his hero moment, and punches Theo. And is it just me, or is the punch? Oh, Look, it's it's very amateurish. Yeah, it feels very weak. Yes. But, you know. You can tell he has not thrown a lot of punches, which is good. He's a young, 
yeah. limo driver. Like, how many people is this guy really punching? That's why they give Theo to Argyle. <laughs> <laughs> the, the geeky, the geeky um, computer bad guy gets the the weak yeah. right hook. I feel like things would have gone differently if that was Carl in the van. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so McLean overhears Hans and Holly as he gets up. Checks his gun, realizes he's only got two bullets left, and we get that nice little shot of Chekhov's sticky tape as well. That's coming up. And as McLean comes around the corner, all bloodied, you get that awesome reveal from the light. Mm, uh, just the silhouette of him. Yeah. You just hear that desperate scream from him. Hans! And Holly's reaction when she sees him is... Oh, yeah, like, like oh, oh God, like, what have you been he's through? He's gone through hell and back. He does... And he, and he sees her, and he just so casually... Hi, honey. (laughs) Nice to see you. (laughs) So he does drop his empty machine gun, making Hans and the other terrorists think that he's unarmed at this point and he's in for an easy kill to finally finish him off. So McLean just starts bursting out laughing, this maniacal laugh. Mm, Very infectious. Yes, it gets everyone laughing and at the right moment, he pulls the gun off his back that was being held there by that sticky tape we had a quick look at, shoots Hans in the chest... Turns yep. around, plugs the other douche in the head. Yeah, right in the forehead. Yep. Perfect shot. And then gives the old, gives the blow on the gun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the old western. Yeah. And the happy trails, Hans. And normally, this I reckon, sometimes at this point, in most generic action films, yep. Yep. Hans goes out the window, it's game over. Yep, exactly. But, but no, he grabs Holly. She goes out the window too. Yep. Luckily, McLean grabs her. They're holding on. McLean does manage to rip that Rolex off, that gold Rolex that has yep. just been paid off. That Alice was so proud of. And down goes Hans. Now, Alan Rickman, if you didn't know this, he actually, this is actually him, he actually fell from like a seven meter high uh, establishment into a into a, like a cushion. Mm, I would hope so. But that reaction that he that you get from him is legit because they said to him, we're going to care, we'll let you go on three and then let him go on one. <laughs> and you see that look in his face, that holy oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so that, that was priceless. That's good. And then you get that Robertson quote, I hope that's not one of our guys. Again, you know, kind of funny. Yeah, I don't mind it at all. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah. This guy's been an asshole the whole movie, but yeah, he's warming up to us. And that's it. McLean has saved Holly. Hans is dead. Everyone yeah, movie, out. Movie's over now, isn't it? No, apparently not. What? what? All, the, all the terrorists are dead. How can it not be over? So everyone's outside now. John's looking around in the crowd for Powell, someone who he's never seen before. But they give each other that look. Oh, they have that special look. Yeah. That special connection. They laugh, they embrace. McLean introduces Holly to him, and that's where we get this perfect indication that everything's going to be okay with these two with that. Alice, my wife, Holly. Holly, you know. Holly McLean. Robinson comes up, tries to reprimand McLean. McLean's pretty much about to deck him, but then yep. you hear this scream, and out comes Carl with a fucking machine this gun. This makes no sense this at all. This is... Probably the only flaw in yeah. this film. This yeah. is bullshit. Yeah, no, absolutely. He what was hanging made, from a chain, man. What, yeah, he's hanging from a chain. Even if he wasn't dead, which he definitely was, <laughs> he wouldn't have been able to get out of that chain anyway. Where did he get a machine gun from? <laughs> <laughs> what would have made more sense if, if it wasn't Carl that came out from there, it was Theo. He was just knocked out. Theo is not going to do that. He was knocked out by that little little girly punch from Argyle. He could still come out swinging. Argyle's not even out of the place yet. How's he going to get out? I think that's more plausible well, than Carl coming what out. What would have made this better is they show Carl hanging from the chains twice in this movie. Uh. If on the second shot, when the hostages are running down, all they show is maybe a little bit of chain or something like that, that show that, that people who are paying attention would notice, hey, he's not there anymore. Yeah. Then... 
But we see yeah. him twice. We see him once when he does it, and then uh, twice, what, maybe five or so minutes later? He's, he's hanging there from... Yeah, he's oh, he's just chilling back. out. Yeah, uh, this is the only part of the movie that really bugs me. Yeah, it, it is it is a bit off, but it is what it is. So he, he pulls the blanket off him. But we, we, I mean, we need we need this to happen so that yes, exactly. we get the payoff for Powell. We get yeah. the arc complete where this guy who was so damaged for killing the 13-year-old boy in his past has now overcome that and was able to save everyone's life and kill Carl at the end and finally shoot his gun again. Yeah. So it is it is very important for Powell, who is obviously one of the main characters of the movie, yeah. to get his closure on his storyline. Yeah, getting a good payoff to his character arc there. They're, and like I said before, there's so many great characters that hold their own, and one of the few action films out there does, but that just... That... And after, after Powell shoots him, we get the instant Argyle smashing through the barrier, <laughs> yeah. and Powell looks like he's ready to shoot this guy. <laughs> yes, he's he, snaps, he snaps back up with his gun, and, and McLean has to like gently, yeah, gently touch him. Hey, 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 he's with <laughs> me. Enough. It's okay. Stop killing people. Maybe there's a reason he's behind the desk now. <laughs> we, we get our final uh, character end here where Thornburg tries to interview McLean and Holly and Holly getting some of that McLean in her... Sass. Yeah, that's Ooh. sass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of movie. Gives him a big punch. later. <laughs> big punch in the face. Busts his nose. Uh, just a great ending for that dickhead too. Yep, certainly is. And we wrap it up with some nice Christmas songs. Some Let It Snow. What a great ending. Any last words? So, Hendo, what are your overall thoughts on this movie? Yeah, to me, there are a few movies that are well-paced and structured as Die Hard, in my opinion. Bruce Willis bursts onto the scene here in one of his most iconic roles to date. Alan Rickman, sensational as Hans Gruber. The rest of the supporting cast all get their fair share of time to get fleshed out, and they become interesting three-dimensional characters. The group of bad guys are not only intelligent with a well-thought-out plan, they're also really likeable. They're hard to root against. The action in this movie is still a standout today. It's an inspiration for so many other inferior action films since then. You you hear it all the time. This is Die Hard on a boat. This is Die Hard on a plane. This is Die Hard in space. It, on a bus. On a bus. Exactly. It, it's, it's replicated so many times. It, and not only is the action spectacular, there's also a great story about this everyday man He's caught up in this improbable situation. He's, he's just trying to do the best he can. He's trying to save his wife. He's just trying to get out of there alive. I mean, he's human. He, he makes mistakes. He's scared. And this is why this is one of the greatest action films, if not the greatest action film out there. It's, it's a perfect Christmas film. Like I said before, I watch it every year around that time. And it'll be no different this year. It is up there in the list of movies I've watched the most in my life, like we said. And I know I'll see. It. I know I'll see it many more times to come. It's an amazing movie, and I'm stoked that this is the film we got to podcast about first. The bar has been set very high, very high indeed. Dean, what about you? Okay, for me, I mean, what you've said is all obviously very true. I think Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman really make this film. What struck me about it that I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of going into this movie was how funny this film is. There is so much comedy thrown in. For a movie with so much cold killing throughout, I think it really balances really well how funny it is, but at the same time how serious and life-threatening all these situations are. John McClane is iconic and unforgettable, as is Hans Gruber, and they really do make the film, along with a very, very good supporting cast of well-fleshed-out characters. Okay, now it's time for a segment we like to call... I was the best because the crowd loved me. Where we will be ranking each movie every week as we go along. And I don't know what you think, Dean, but... Well, for me personally, 
This would be number one on my list. Yeah, for, like at this point, it's definitely number one for me. So yeah, there's really not a lot of competition. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, it's also last on my list. Yeah, it doesn't bode well for it. <laughs> okay, now it's time for. We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is, and this oh. could be it. Oh. Where we read our listener reviews. So our first review is from our good friend Georgia. She says, My go to Christmas movies, grew up on them. My introduction to Bruce Willis, could watch all, first three over and over again, and my favourite is the original. Big call. <laughs> also, we've got one from Eliza saying it's perfect for Christmas Eve entertainment. Also, from Chris, we've got When Bruce Willis Still Cared. In my opinion, this is a pinnacle of the 80s action film and has one of the best movie villains ever in Hans Gruber. Also, fuck you to anyone who says this is a Christmas film. (laughs) But it is a damn fine action film. Five out of five. We also have one from Matthew Noble, a prime candidate for the best action movie of all time, and one that practically created its own subgenre of diehard clones during the 90s. From McTiernan's pristine direction to Willis and Rickman's iconic performances, it's a flawless masterpiece that is yet to be topped. And yes, Die Hard is a Christmas film. It's set during the holidays. It features several Yuletide references. And most importantly, a lot of people watch it around that time of the year. I know I do. So those are your reviews for Die Hard. Make sure to send us an email at imdbjourney at gmail.com. You can contact us on our Facebook page, on our Twitter account, or on our Letterboxd account for any reviews or comments you have coming up. So, what's next? Okay, so now it's time to find out which movie we'll be reviewing next week. So we've got our number generator up here. Random number generator. Random number generator. And let's figure out what we're going to get. And we have got got? number 59. Dean, tell us what number 59 is. 59 is Django Unchained. All right. So if you're all listening along with us, you've got this week to watch Django Unchained. Get your reviews in. Get your questions in. If you would like to stick around on this podcast, we're going to talk about what else we've been watching this week. But if you feel like this is also <laughs> this is too long already, <laughs> uh, that is perfectly fine with us. You can stop right here, and we'll see you next week for Django Unchained. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs, and a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? So, Dean, what else have you been watching this week besides Die Hard? Okay, so this week I went and saw the Justice League. I went in a bit skeptical, expecting it to be. I think we should first set up your no. Let's not your set love up for that. D- your no, love no, for no, DC. No, no. Your love for Batman. DC. We DC's okay. Um, <laughs> so. So I went in with um, probably low expectations of it. I took my my five year old son with me to see it, and yeah, I, fuck the haters. I loved it. I don't care what anyone says. It is. It has comedy. It's serious when it needs to. The characters of the Justice League are very well thought out, very well developed. The villain could have been better in Steppenwolf, but he was he was definitely not bad. And I'm very much looking forward to any further. DC movies in the DCEU if they do come out because uh, Justice League is not doing too well at the box office. Yeah, it's uh, it's going quite poorly at the moment for it them. It could lose money. Yeah, that's not good. That's unreal. 
Also this week, after watching Justice League, I thought I might go back and revisit Batman vs. Superman. Now, this is the Ultimate Edition, is the it? The Ultimate Extra Snyder Cut with, I think there's an extra 30-plus minutes of footage in there. And not the terrible, terrible theatrical release. Not the theatrical release, okay. no. And again, I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Again, I went in thinking, yeah, this movie, it might not be that great. I love Batman in general, so I'm going to really love it no matter what, but... I really, really liked it. It's very serious in tone, and it's not a bad thing. Not everything has to be bright colours of the Avengers. That's not my issue with the Batman vs Superman movie. I didn't ask what your issue was. You talked to me like that was my issue, that it's too dark. No, 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 no. My issue is just the overall choppiness of it, the fact that everyone should just know what's going on with all these, this history of DCEU, the awful CGI monster battle at the end. Yeah, but that's one thing that... Uh, it's funny, like, that that's the one thing I actually thought would be the worst. I loved it. I, I loved it. It's not that bad. The CG's pretty good. Doomsday is an iconic Superman villain. I'm going to need a lot more convincing to watch that Ultimate Special, I'm telling you. Well, let's get voting it into the top 250 of IMDb, <laughs> so we have to make Endo watch it. <laughs> I think we'll be done with the podcast before that, that ends up in the list. Uh, probably. So, I didn't watch too much this week. But I did manage to catch the Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film last year, The Salesman. It was directed by Asghar Fahadi, who also directed the 2011 film A Separation, a film which we'll be discussing at some point during this journey as well. It's about a married couple who perform in this play, The Death of a Salesman, together. And through a series of unfortunate events, the wife is ended up being assaulted and we get to see the husband attempt to determine the identity of the attacker almost to the point where it just consumes him, while we also see the wife struggle to cope with the post-traumatic stress. Now, this movie, as you probably can tell, is a depressing, depressing drama. It's a foreign film, so if you're not into subtitle films and that, it's not going to be for you. But bear in mind, you know, we're going to be watching a lot of subtitle films along the way here, but uh, the acting in this movie... Not all of them are bad, Hendo. Oh, <laughs> I love subtitle films. <laughs> Don't get me started. But the acting in this movie from both leads is fantastic. It really drags you into the characters and what they're going through. There's some strong themes of guilt and anger, forgiveness, protection of self-image, relationships. And the third act, even though I, I found the way it led into that act was somewhat only by chance, it was extremely powerful. It's, it's really rare for a movie to be able to make you feel sympathetic for both sides but this movie accomplishes it. It's a great film. It's one you should check out. I can see why it did win Best Foreign Film at, at the latest Academies. Mm, I'll be sure to check that one out. Well, I'm looking forward to hear your opinions the next time. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Mark this spot. I'm not going to check it out ever. <laughs> Mark this spot. He said he's going to watch it. You can't, you're taking that to the bank. Sense the tone, guys. All right. That is all we've been watching this week. Uh, for anyone who did stick around for this short little clip at the end, uh, thank you for that. Again, if you want to... Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. It's search for IMDb Journey. Uh, our email is imdbjourney at gmail.com. Follow us on Letterbox. We're all on there. Just just search for IMDb Journey and you'll and you'll find us. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Take yeah. it easy, guys. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a good one. Bye.